The word Shema means what? You've heard me say it before. What does it mean? Shema. It's an Old Testament Hebrew word that means listen. To hear producing an action. The hearing that produces an action. It's a statement of faith. And each week, last week I talked a little bit about the Jewish mindset. And if you remember, I talked about the difference between Greek and Jewish. And I talked about um, how the Greek, we're more Greek and Western in our thinking. We're abstract. The Jewish is more concrete. The, the abstract means to pull th- things out of their natural setting. And I use the example of biology. If you want to study a frog, what do you do? You dissect it in the West. In the East, they go study a frog in a pond. They watch it in its natural context. We, we open it up and try to learn things about it from an intellectual way. We're, we're more into mental concepts, definitions, propositions, and systematic uh, explanations of things. Whereas for the Easterner, they're much more into metaphor, story, dramatic action. Things as they happen in the real world. What's really going on. Not just to think about it, but to apply it. And we looked at uh, the fact that more than 70% of Scripture is story. And we talked about how a Greek tries to reach somebody's uh, heart through their head, but an Easterner, a Hebrew, would try to reach their head through their heart. And Jesus used parables. He used parables, and, and I had always been taught that parables were really to confuse unbelievers. They were, they were kind of riddles or mysteries for people. And Jesus explained it to the people. But really, Jesus used parables as a, he, was, he was functioning as a rabbi. They looked at him as a rabbi. And to really understand the role of a rabbi, we don't get that in our culture. We have completely taken what God used in the Hebrew people as a way to get them to obey and listen. The rabbi was a person that explained, but he didn't just explain. He explained, he modeled, and then he encouraged them to do it. He was the go-between between God's Word and God's people. Today, most pastors and most Christian leaders just give you the explanation and they leave it up to you to do everything. That's not the way God instrumented it with the uh, Hebrew people. That's not the way He implemented it with them. And so, Jesus used parables at the end of Scripture or to refer back to a Scripture to, uh, to make the teaching clear. That was one thing He did. And then the other thing He did was to explain and interpret Scripture. That's called Haggadah. That's a Hebrew word that means to in- interpret or explain. Say it, Haggadah. Haggadah. Then, he also used the parable to apply Scripture. That's Halakha. Halakha. Say Halakha. Halakha. So Haggadah is the explanation. Halakha is the walking it out in life. It's what it looks like on a daily basis. Parables make it clear what we're supposed to do. In looking at parables we got to ask the question, what Scripture is this parable explaining? Now, a lot of times, Jesus will tag a parable onto the end. But what do you do when He puts eight parables together like He did over in Matthew 13, 14 in that area? Then you got to look, okay, is He referring back to an Old Testament text? 
which he a lot of times is. And so we got to ask the question, what am I supposed to do to walk this out when I see this parable? How do I implement it? Jesus used three types of metaphor. He used inanimate objects, he used power figures, and he used human metaphors. So the inanimate was a rock, a fortress, a tower, a shield. He used those pictures for his followers to get an idea of what he was talking about, and they would grasp that. He used power figures, a king. And his parables, a king, is always representing who? Who do you think a king represents in the parables? God. God. Exactly. Every Jewish person would know that. Warriors. He used warriors. He used eagles, like an eagle's wing. He used human metaphors, human uh, descriptions. A shepherd, a father, a mother. The thing about a shepherd that's interesting is if you study the shepherds, they've never changed how they lead the sheep. Do you know how a shepherd leads the sheep? They don't drive the sheep. They lead the sheep by calling them, and the sheep hear their voice and follow them. It was always about the ears with God's people. In fact, if you look throughout the Bible, it's always about hear, listen, Here, listen. Egypt was about the eye. Egypt was about desire. The eye always represented desire. So Israel was about the ears, which represent obedience. And last week, we looked at what to do when we're disobedient. Four times in that passage last week, the word listen was used. And it was about getting the the sheep to come back into the flock. Getting the sheep to come back in a relationship. And we looked at God teaching His disciples. And let me just, for the guys who are new here for the first week, let me give you the context. The disciples had been with Jesus. Three of them were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. The other nine were down at the bottom. They were trying to cast out a demon and it wasn't going well. In fact, they couldn't cast the demon out. The religious leaders in the crowd was kind of arguing with them, saying they're a hoax. They they were just going back and forth with them. Jesus, on the other hand, is up on the uh, the mountain with these three, and what do you think? They're they're having a revival. They see Moses, they see Elijah, they see Jesus in His glory. So what happens when you take a group of people that are from the same group, some of them have this incredible spiritual experience and are all high, and they're the ones that have been chosen to go with the leader. And then you have these nine over here who are doing the grunt work down on the bottom, feeling left out, and they they fail. What happens when you bring those two groups together? Do you think insecurities pop up? Do you think they, they... That's what started an argument. And Jesus addressed the argument by bringing a child into the middle of them. And He said, guys, you don't get it. Remember, He's leaving the ministry to these men. He's more focused on them than He is the crowds at any time. And He says to them, unless you humble yourself like a child, you're not even going to get in the kingdom of heaven. It's about a child. It's this childlike faith. You've got to understand, guys, I'm leaving you in charge. You're arguing about greatness, and it's about humility. You lead as a shepherd. And a shepherd doesn't drive the people. It's not about stature or position. It's about leading from a, a, a viewpoint of humility. And he's got that child right in the middle of it. 
And then he, he gives them this illustration about cutting your arm off if it causes you to sin or plucking your eye out. And what he's saying there is he's saying, it's serious, the sin we're talking about. And he's not talking about the immorality sin. He's talking about the sin of pride in their heart. And I tell you what, I know a lot of churches that do church discipline now. I didn't when I first uh, you know, moved to Jacksonville. But you know what? A lot of churches focus their discipline on sexual immorality. And Jesus cared a lot more about pride than He did sexual immorality. Not that sexual immorality shouldn't be dealt with, but far too often we dismiss pride in our leaders and in our pastors. We dismiss it. Oh, that's just the way he is. He didn't mean anything by it. And people won't confront. And we let that go until years later, he ends up falling and he ends up making a bad choice and then splits the church because we don't deal with pride. And Jesus says, guys, this is serious. You need to have the attitude of cutting your arm off, plucking your eye. This is serious stuff. And then the third thing he says is, when the sheep is lost, you go after them. You guys should be more concerned about rescuing the sheep than how great you are. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's, he's, he's rebuking them there. And then in 15 through 20, last week we looked at the fact that he took them through a process of what that looks like when somebody offends them. When somebody is in sin that's unrepentant. How do you deal with it? You go to them personally and privately, we said. There's a process for the faith community. And somebody wrote me an email and they said, you know, I don't think it's right that you refer to SWAT as a faith community because it's really not a church. And I said, well, according to what Ecclesia means, it is a group of believers. It doesn't even say believers. It is a group of people that come together with a common purpose. That's what the word Ecclesia means. Now, we've given a church a specific way to look in the West. But for the people in North Korea, you know what church is? It's meeting on a fishing boat out in the middle of a river. That's their church. There's no youth group. There's no singing. There's reading the Scriptures and praying. And you're going to tell them that's not a church? That's not an ecclesia? Guys, when you come together around the Word with other believers, now his point was some of the guys at SWAT may not be believers and who are they to come telling a believer that they're in sin? Well, here's the, here's the issue. And I wrote back to him. I said, the first thing you have to do when you confront a brother is you examine your own heart. That's what Scripture says in Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual, it says. So the first thing is we look inward We humble ourselves because the goal is not punishment for this person. You're not going to condemn them. You're going to say, hey, you know what? I want us to be in relationship. I want you to be in relationship with God. And what you did was wrong. We're not talking about not speaking to you, Brian, in the hallway. We're not talking about petty little stuff like that. We're talking about moral sin. We're talking about deep stuff. Stuff that goes against God's Word. And the first thing is you go to them. The second thing you do is you get two people, preferably older, wiser people, and you go to them. And if they don't repent then, you get the whole group involved. You talk to the whole ecclesia, the whole group. And then if they still don't, it says to treat them like a tax gatherer and a Gentile again. That's not judgment. What you're treating them like is an unbeliever. And Jesus, the way He treated unbelievers was how? He wanted to see them in the fold. 
So he was always reaching. So you never stop being somebody looking to get them back in. You don't turn your back on them. You just, they're not in the fellowship because they're not acting like a believer. And it's about the purity of the body. That's what we looked at. And then he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. And it's in the context of that. When two or three people are exercising that way to purify the body, he's saying, I'm right there with them. You can trust I'll be with you. Well, Peter's mulling this over in his brain because Peter's, man, he's sharp. That's why he picked him. He's, he's the first one out of the boat. He's, you know, he's first one to stick his foot in his mouth too, but he's always thinking. He's wanting to get this stuff. So he asked him, well, how many times do I forgive my brother? He's thinking about what he just taught. That little kid is still in front of Jesus. This is still the same setting that's going on. And so... What he does is Jesus tells him, because in Peter's mind, he had been taught by the rabbis that you only forgive three times. And they base that on Job. There's a, cha- uh, there's a verse in Job that says that. And then the first and second chapter of Amos, it says three times God overlooked this, but the fourth time He won't. Talking about nations. So the rabbis had picked up on that, and they said three times you forgive somebody, the fourth time it's done. But Peter says, how about seven times, Lord? Seven's a Jewish complete number. He says, how about seven times? And Jesus says 77. So what's going on with that? Well, there's two things, I think, in this that God's commanding us to do. First of all, to pursue forgiving others with a passion and with understanding. And the key word there is pursue. Not sit back. Pursue forgiving others with a passion and understanding. And why understanding? Because they're like children. He was referring to children not just in a physical sense, but children in a spiritual sense, young and immature. And we're going to look at that. The second thing is, he tells this story about a king with a guy who owed him money. And and in that, he's, he's laying out the command for us to practice forgiving others with patience and a humble heart. To practice. So now, why, why does he tell parables? Remember what I said? What's halakha? He tells a parable for them to do it. The reason the parable is there is to say, this is what you do, guys. For the Easterner, that's what they did. That's what Jesus did. The parable was kind of a charge to go do it. And what do they want to do? Practice forgiveness with patience and a humble heart. So let's look at this passage in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. We're going to read the 35. We'll come back and unpack each one of these. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive what will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not repay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. May God bless his word. Pursue forgiving others with a passion and an understanding. Peter says, how, how, how many times, Lord, when my brother sins against me, how many times? Seven? And Jesus says, 77 or seven times seven. The way it's written, it can be either one of those phrases, guys. It can be 77 or 70 times seven. I tend to lean toward the 77, and a lot of people do. In fact, some translations will have 77 instead of 70 times. The reason is, seven was the number of completeness for the Jew. I think that's why Peter said seven. Seven times, Lord. But when Jesus responded to him 77, that would have immediately popped into a Jewish person's head back in Genesis. You know why? In Genesis chapter 4, there's a guy named Lamech. Do you know who Lamech is? He is the seventh son in the ungodly, disobedient line of Adam. Adam has two lines of people that come out of him. He has the Cain line that's un... they're they're unbelieving, um, they're basically considered disobedient, the ungodly line. And then he has the godly line that comes through Seth, who replaced Abel. If you go down, and now every Jew would know this. Every Jew would know that Adam had Seth, Seth had Enosh, Enosh had Kenan, Kenan had Mahaliel, Mahaliel had Jared, and Jared had Enoch, who was translated. The seventh one was translated. It says he walked with God and God took him. That's the godly line. But the ungodly line was Adam, Cain, another Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Methushael, and then Lamech. Every Jew would know that. Seven sons good, seven sons bad. But the interesting thing about Lamech, he was the seventh one. Now, I don't know if you remember, when Cain, Cain was afraid he would be killed because he killed Abel. Remember that? And what did God say? God, God would be the protector of him, right? Obviously, he said something about protecting him seven times and bringing vengeance seven times because Lamech made the statement, if Cain is avenged seven times when he's killed, then Lamech will be 77. In fact, I'm going to read it in Genesis 4, 23 and 24. He's singing this song to his right wife's his wives. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. 
you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So apparently some young guy struck him and he killed him. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So what he's saying there is if somebody comes against me, may God curse them and bring revenge on them 77 times. He had a passion for revenge against the person that would come against him because he killed that young man. Now what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, you have to forgive somebody with the same passion that Lamech wanted revenge. Guys, I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. Nobody had ever taught me that there was a connection there between those two passages. It's about, not, it's not a number or some infinite number. The point Jesus was making is you have a passion for seeking, un, you know, seeking forgiveness with somebody. And understanding. Why? Because they're like children. Have you ever noticed how we give children passes when they do something? Why do we do that? Tom, you have grandchildren, right? Yes. When they do something bad, do you forgive them? <clears throat> Try to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you cut them some slack because, well, I know why. Because Brian looks at you and he goes, Man, you never cut me slack like that, Dad. Have you ever thought that? Yeah. Okay. Why is it? Because, because we give kids the benefit of being immature. So what Jesus is talking about being understanding with is when we look at young believers. Listen, I'm going to tell you, and Bud, you've traveled around the country. You've been around the United States a lot. I think as a country, we have some of the most immature believers in the world. And so as immature believers, the way we deal with each other is with understanding because they're going to make mistakes. So we pursue with a passion forgiveness. Hey, Doug? Yeah. You ever look up the meaning of the word passion? It means suffering. It means to suffer. You're going to suffer just like Jesus did. You will. And listen, this is not saying you have to like the circumstances, that you have to just write off the feelings that you have. That's not saying that at all. How many of you guys heard the radio interview with Chris Carrier, the guy who was kidnapped down in Miami? I have not met anybody, but well, maybe one. John Monger is like this guy in my mind as far as forgiveness. Chris Carrier was a 10-year-old who was kidnapped because the guy was mad at his dad for firing him. And he stabbed him multiple times as a 10-year-old. I want you to imagine a 10-year-old boy being stabbed with an ice pick and then taken out to the Everglades and shot in the forehead and left for six days. Six days he stayed out there. Six days he, he, he was out there with nobody but God. And God surrounded him with his angels. God protected him for six days. There were alligators out there. There were snakes out there. There were other, there were um, probably panthers out there, other kind of, of, you know, wildcats. And he's out for six days. Wounded, bleeding. He didn't bleed out. He didn't get eaten by an animal. 
It's almost like Daniel in the lion's den, just sitting out there. Six days later, they rescue him. Now, the detective that investigated knew who they thought it was, but they didn't have any physical evidence. But Chris was able to describe him somewhat, so they put a lineup together, but he, he couldn't be sure. So they couldn't, they couldn't really uh, indict the guy. So the guy got off. But that detective, was, he just was haunted by that his whole career. So 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, um, he found out this guy was in a nursing home and dying. So he goes to him on his own and says, hey, I know, you remember that Chris Carrier kid? I know you did it. You know you did it. Why don't you confess? The statute of limitations is over. You're not going to be prosecuted. You're here in a nursing home dying. Just confess and clear up your conscience. And at first he denied it. But finally he came around and he said, I left that boy, I left that boy, and he just starts weeping. Well, that detective calls Chris and says, Chris, he confessed. Would you like to visit with him? He's out in a nursing home. So Chris wrestled with that, but decided to go see him. Hadn't seen the guy since he left him there that day when he was a 10-year-old. Chris goes out there and he sees a 60, 70 pound man dying from emphysema, tuberculosis. He's got glaucoma, he can't see. So the guy introduces him and he says, this is the guy that kidnapped you. He goes, I didn't kidnap him. And he tries to retract it, but then they start talking and he ends up confessing. And he starts crying. And Chris takes his hand and he says, I, I hold no ill will toward you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And then he went beyond that. He began sharing the gospel with him. And that man trusted Christ that day. And for the next two weeks before he died, he died two weeks later, Chris came and read the Bible to him and prayed with him. Nobody else did that. This guy had nobody else in his life. Chris did that. That's a picture of forgiveness. That's a picture of <clears throat> going... Yeah, it is. You guys, listen. You're never more like God than when you forgive. And you're never less like God than when you don't forgive. And, and I, I guarantee you right now when we're talking about this in everybody's mind, there's been somebody who's wounded you at some point in your life that you've struggled to forgive. There is for me. We all picture people, maybe multiple people that pop into our mind. And, and if we are His, there's no limit to forgiveness. There's no limit to who we forgive and how we forgive. Lord, how often? And that's what He's saying. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then at the end of it, in verse 14, he says, If you don't forgive, the Father's not going to forgive you. 
And what he's saying there is he's not saying forgiveness is conditioned to get into heaven. He's saying that if you experience the Father's forgiveness, if you experience it, not just know about it, if you experience it, you're going to be a vessel of forgiving other people. Just like Chris was. I had lunch with Chris and talked to him for a good while. He has no ill will. The way he talked about that man was with love and tenderness. This is a guy that stabbed him and shot him. He can't see in his right eye today. It severed his optic nerve, so he's blind. He's got a little indent in his head from the gunshot, but no ill will. No ill will. You see, that was part of God's unfolding plan. Isn't it wild how God can take something so tragic like that and use it to be so glorifying to Himself? All for, things come together for good. For those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. He says, pursue forgiving others with passion and an understanding. you got to forgive somebody with the same passion that an evil Lamech seeks revenge. Well, he tells this story, and just to go into it a little bit, he says the king, we already talked about the king being God, right? He says the king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, um, and he began to settle, one was brought to him. Take note of that. He didn't go to this person. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, just to give you an understanding of that, 10, 10, first of all, 10,000 was the highest, the number for the 10,000 is the highest Greek number there was. They couldn't list another Greek higher number than 10,000. That was it. And talent was the highest form of currency you could have. So, in other words, it would be like, you remember when you were a kid growing up and you'd say gazillion? And nobody knows what a gazillion is. It just is lots, right? So the point of this is he owed 10,000 talents. Just to give you some perspective on it, in Galilee, the total revenue for one year was 300 talents. The total revenue in Judea and Samaria was 600. So Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, the combined total of all their revenue in one year was 900 talents. And this guy owed 10,000. So do you think the disciples are understanding what Jesus is trying to communicate to them? This was an unpayable debt. And here's what's comical. Because he said... The master wanted to be paid and he couldn't pay him, so he was going to sell them and his family, the man and his family, to get what he could on the market for him to pay off what little he could. And the servant fell on his face. He said, please be patient with me and I will pay everything, which was a lie. He could never pay 10,000 talents if he worked for the rest of his life. But that's what he said. And it says, out of pity, the master released him and he forgave him the debt. Now, when he forgave him the debt, it cost the master something. It was costly. But when he released him from it, it went away from him. Have you ever been in debt so bad that you didn't know what you were going to do? When I moved from Houston to Dallas, I had two houses. I had a lot of medical bills with one of my daughters. 
I tried to go off and do some kind of sports ministry thing to help fund the ministry that didn't work out. And I ended up being about $70,000 in debt. And when you're a missionary, bud, that doesn't work too well, does it? Because there ain't a whole lot of disposable income. You don't get big year-end bonuses that help cover that kind of stuff. And so I was in a very bad way. And I had a couple of guys who came to me and helped me put together a plan. And they said, Doug, part of that plan is we want to give you an amount of money. It's going to require something of you, but we're going to give this and to help wipe that debt away. And they did. Pretty considerable amount of money. And they said, you don't owe us anything. It's done. You don't owe us a thing. It's paid for. And I'm going to tell you, when that happened, I felt this release, this, all this burden gone. The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was saying here. They were a part of the story. You see, from the Jewish mindset, they get into the story. They knew He was talking to them. You see, the whole thing was part of this setup as He's been unfolding how you deal with a sinning brother. And now He's talking to them about forgiveness. And they're the ones in the story and they know that. So when the king forgives the debt, they're all excited. Because they know they've experienced that. They didn't have the ability to pay for their sin. They didn't have the ability. All the things that had gone on in their life that they walked around with were freed because Jesus said, I've come to set you free. They knew that. But what they didn't expect was the second part. Where he says, then this guy goes and looks for somebody else who owes him money. A hundred denarii. It's a pittance compared to 10,000. And he chokes him. Get the imagery there? This guy's angry. He's bitter because this guy owes him something. And he's been forgiven something way more costly than that guy owes him. And he's choking him. And the guy says the exact words, have patience with me, I'll pay you back. That should have triggered in his mind something. But it didn't. And he had him thrown in prison. He had him thrown in prison. Ephesians 4.32 says, forgive like God forgives you. All throughout Scripture, we see examples of this before Jesus was ever on the scene. Back in Genesis chapter 20, or 50, I'm sorry, chapter 50, you've got Joseph who spent a lot of time in prison, not because of anything bad he did, because his brothers were jealous. They wanted to kill him. They put him in a pit. He got picked up. He was a slave, then thrown in prison. And for years, he sat in a prison. And when he had the opportunity to bring vengeance as the second in command of that whole area, he looked him in the eye and he said, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. And God used him to save not only his brothers, but his dad, his family, and the Israelite people. And you think about that. Joseph was given that by God. You can't do that on your own. You can't do that on a human level. Made me think of Chris Carrier. The very guy who tried to kill him 
God uses to bring him into the kingdom. How wild is that? You can't, you, you couldn't make that up the way it happened. But he was passionate about pursuing forgiveness. And he practiced it. Guys, see, I think a lot of times in our minds we think we should, but we don't practice it. We don't, we don't really practice the forgiveness that we've been given. And it says to do it with patience. What does it say, both guys? Be patient with me. Be patient with me. You know what patience means? It means understanding. It's, it's understanding that there's going to be times that people wound us. Wounded people wound other people. Hurt people hurt other people. And so as believers who have been forgiven much, everybody in here is guilty of the blood of Christ. Do you know that? Everybody in here is guilty of the blood of Christ. And because we're all guilty of the blood of Christ, that means we can't look down on anybody for what they do. And yet we do. David in the Old Testament with Saul. Saul tried to kill him over and over. And David was in a cave and Saul came in that cave and David could have, bam, he could have taken him down. Any other king might have, but not David. He cut a little piece of his robe to let him know he could have just to show him that... And then he felt bad about that. What a tender heart. Our hearts, when they're hard, guys, we don't want to forgive anybody. We don't want to forgive anybody. There's a center out in L.A. and in Chicago and in Miami called the Simon Weisenthal Center. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it deals with the Holocaust. It deals with hate crimes. It deals with terrorism. It deals. There's a, these centers actually are. It's like a human rights kind of thing. But it was named after this guy named Simon Weisenthal. He was a prisoner in a Polish. It was a German concentration camp in Poland. But he was a prisoner there. He was a Jew. And one day he was assigned to pick up the rubbish and the trash in this area, this particular area. And there was a barn there that they had converted into a hospital. And as he was going to do this one day, he was picking up his trash like he was supposed to do. A nurse came over and grabbed him and said, come with me. And as a Jew, you went where these people told you to go. So he went with her and she brought him to a wounded SS soldier laying out on a cot his face was all bandaged up just two little slits for his eyes to see through he was in bad shape he was dying young 21 year old guy grabbed his hand when he came up to him and he said i need to tell you my story i need to tell you and i need to ask you to forgive me i've killed your people he said he told him his whole story of how he got in the SS, of how he mowed down men, women, and children as they were running out of burning buildings. And he was, he was so distraught. And he said, I just want to tell you and tell you I'm sorry. Please, will you forgive me? I cannot die without being forgiven. Weisenthal, after hearing the story jerked his hand away from the 21 year old he walked away didn't say a word didn't forgive him didn't say a word 
And he wrote about this in a book he called The Sunflower, kind of an autobiography of his book. And he asked this question. He said, at the end of the book, after he tells all this, he says, what would you have done? If you were me, what would you have done? And I, I look at that, and I think, what will we do when we leave here? What do we do with the people that are on our minds that have wounded us so deeply that we don't even want to talk to them? What do we do? Jesus said, by saying this parable to the disciples, remember what Halakai is? Go do it. Go do it. Not seven times. Seventy-seven. With the same passion as Lamech for vengeance, I want you to have a passion for forgiveness. Go do it. Stephen got it. He's being stoned. He said, Father, forgive them. They all got it eventually. But it took a while. And I think it takes a while with us. I had a guy come up to me after the first SWAT this morning. And he says, man... I know that I should do this. It's just so hard. And he said, the crazy thing is the disciples walked with him and heard this stuff over and over for three, two, three years, and they still scattered. And Peter tried to take the ear off of the guy in the garden. And I said, does that make you feel better? It makes me feel better. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I guess. But guys... If we don't do it, it's just empty words, what we say. And what God is saying about forgiveness to us is you've been forgiven much. Everybody in this room, if you're a believer, had been forgiven much. Now go do it. You know, I've been hurt by some people in my life. A lot of times the people closest to us hurt us the worst. But I've also hurt some people in my life. I've been the beneficiary of a lot of grace from God's forgiveness in their life, which extended to me. So as we leave, let's be an extension of God's mercy and forgiveness into the lives of the people that have hurt us. Go do it. What will you do? Jerry, will you close our time in prayer today? Father, thank you.